Hey everybody, welcome back to the Upon This Rock podcast. My name is Max Thomas and I am your host. Uh, And today I'm having a conversation with Pastor Brian Zond. Um, Brian is the lead pastor and founding pastor of Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. He's the author of, I think, 10 books, uh, speaks all over the world. And uh, he has been, I would say, one of the most important uh, writers and preachers in my own walk with the Lord, in my own spiritual formation. Um, Starting all the way back in 2015, I uh, listened to him uh, give a talk on uh, the crucifixion of Jesus and how we should understand it. And he opened up kind of Pandora's box for me, to be honest. And um, a lot of my spiritual transformation, uh, theological transformation, that was really the impetus for it. That was the kind of the genesis of it. And I have closely followed his uh, work in ministry ever since then. And I had already known him from years, years ago. We have some mutual uh, ministry relationships in 2010. I think it was nine or 10. I went on a tour of the Holy Land with him in Israel, which is one of the great experiences of my life. And I went to his prayer school in 2018. And so we've interacted a a number of times over the years. And um, I absolutely love Pastor Brian. He um, is uh, a unique and important voice, I think, in our day and our time. And so we have a conversation uh, about uh, being a pastor. And he tells a little bit of his story. um, And we just have some Really, really honest, very raw, very candid conversation, um, honestly, about what it means to be a pastor, um, what is the role of a pastor, um, you know, the role of prayer and teaching and the Bible, navigating difficult situations as a pastor. At the end, I even ask him, what's what's something that you, um, you wish most congregants knew about pastors uh, that maybe they don't quite understand? And he gave a very uh, a very honest answer uh, about about that, a very candid answer. And so uh, I had a great, great time uh, catching up with him and talking with him. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation as we continue to uh, talk about the church and have conversations around the church. So uh, I'm going to get out of the way. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Pastor Brian Zond. Okay, I got Brian's on with me on the on the podcast. Brian, thanks for uh, thanks for coming on. Sure, Max. Um, question for you: We want to talk about pastoring. Uh, we were just joking before recording here that you are probably the only person who can claim, and that is probably a good thing, that you have been a pastor longer than you have been an adult. Yeah. Uh, Tell me that story or tell the, I've heard it, but tell the listeners that story real quick of how it is that you became a pastor before you could legally go vote or buy a drink. Exactly. It it was all an accident. I, it's not a pattern to follow, but it's what happened. I encountered Jesus in the, in the 1970s, in the Jesus movement. I was just turning 16. Um, it was very dramatic. <clears throat> By the time I was 17, I was leading a ministry called the Catacombs, which was a coffee house, which was sort of a music venue uh, for the Jesus music scene. But, you know, it was becoming more and more a de facto church where we were discipling people, people are getting saved, I'm baptizing them, I'm teaching them what I know, which is not much, but it's a year's worth more than they know. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. And that, and that, and that just seamlessly that turned into Word of Life. We we say that Word of Life began on November first, nineteen eighty one. That was our first Sunday morning gathering. But that was the only thing that was different. It was the same people in the same place that had already been there, and it and we just finally said, okay, we'll officially call it a church. But I'd been leading that group of people since I was 17. And so that's how that happened. And so, you know, young guys will come to me and they'll say, uh, they'll say, uh, well, I, I want some counsel on planting a church. I said, I know nothing about it. 
I mean, I didn't ever plant a church. I mean, we didn't even have that language. It just sort of happened accidentally out of a Jesus movement coffee house, and it sort of accidentally turned into a church. So I know nothing about planting a church, so I can't help you there. I have decided, though, that the next time somebody, because we're going to celebrate our 40th anniversary here uh, this November as a church, uh, the, the next time a young guy comes and wants some counsel, I'm just, I'm just going to lean back and go, well, the first 40 years are the hardest. <laughs> that's going to be my line. There you go. That's great. Yeah, that's awesome. That's, did you know Perry at that point oh, when yeah. you were yes, doing yeah. the catacombs and all that kind Been of stuff? with me every step of the way. We became an wow. item when I was 16 and she was 15. Holy so moly. We have grown up together, done life together, raised kids together, raised a church together, pastored a church together. We kind of talk about word of life being, well, we have three sons, and they're all grown now, three sons, and, and we had our one daughter, which was Word of Life Church, and she gave us way more trouble than our sons. <laughs> sure. Yeah, there you go. That's a great line. Um, so, okay, as someone who's been a pastor longer than you could vote for president. Um, I had this thought, so when I was planning this series of episodes on on the church, talking about what is the church and how does the church meant to function and, and trying to figure out what, what do I want to talk through? Uh, I had this thought, you know, you can't have a church really without a pastor. Um, and yet I don't know how many of us think about what what it means to be a pastor. We're just, we just show up on a Sunday morning and there's a guy, well, not in a suit anymore. I was going to say in a suit, but that's, uh, that even dates me a little bit to the fact that I, I grew up in the 90s church, but some guy in, you know, skinny jeans, or if you go to big church, some guy in some preacher in sneakers. Um, and have you seen that Instagram account, by the way? Have I, you seen I preachers? Have. Yes, I have. Okay. It's just all time great content. I love it. It's so fun. Um, but anyway, He's just there. The pastor is just there. And um, so I thought it would be good to have a conversation about, and we'll open, I'll open just with this question. Um, as somebody who's been a pastor now for over 40 years, you're about ready to celebrate your 40th anniversary as a church, but you, you were just saying you, you were pastoring before that. So over 40 years. Um, what does it mean to be a pastor kind of in your, in your eyes? Like, what is that responsibility yeah. you think that you carry. Um, and then I'd be interested as kind of like a follow-up, how has that understanding changed for you over the years? What did you, you know, you kind of just stumbled into it, I understand, but you went into it with some idea, um, at least okay. in the early days. And then how has that, how has that changed uh, over the years? Okay. I'm going to kind of maybe come at this several different ways. Um, well, Pastor, you know, it's simply a word, poimen, that's Greek. I mean, it's just a word that means shepherd. That's what it means. And I think it gets to the heart of what the true vocation is. Um, the pastor is a trusted soul who, assumably, has some level of experience and wisdom in the things of Christ and can help people find their way. Um, now, as I say that, I think, well, you know, what, what was I doing doing it at such a young age? But it's just what happened. It's just, and I, whereas I say, I don't think that was necessarily, it's certainly not a pattern to follow. I don't think it was a bad thing either. You, you had to kind of be there to see what was happening. I mean, I was very young, but I was the same age as almost everybody else, or maybe a year or two older. And so it just happened that way. And um, I think in its purest form, a pastor is someone who can guide a person, help them along their spiritual journey of following Jesus. You know, Jesus, when he is kind of reinstating, reaffirming Peter's call, you know, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? You know, the three times, because that's undoing the three times denial. And Jesus says, well, you know, feed my sheep and feed my lambs and tend my sheep. I think that's what it is. I think it's uh, a pastor does a lot of things, but I think 
chiefly the pastor is to tend to the spiritual well-being of the flock. I don't know if that sounds cliche or if that just sounds idealistic, but I do think that's what it is. Now, where I want to comment is the American experience, and, and of course it's going to be replicated in other places as well, but I'm just going to speak from the American experience in our times, uh, the pastor can get very, can get drawn very far away from that. I think I've always tried to resist it. Um, pastors can become, um, I mean, a lot of pastors who, if they weren't pastors, would be businessmen. I can tell you this much. If I weren't a pastor, I'm not sure what I'd be, but I can, I can, promise, you, I can promise you it wouldn't be, wouldn't be a businessman. Um, I understand why that works because, especially in, in a lot of the circles that we're familiar with, Max, it's very entrepreneurial in the sense that, again, I don't even necessarily believe in non-denominational church, but, but I'm the founding pastor of one. But it's just, again, it's my only defense, if I have to make a defense, is it's what happened. But there's a lot of those kind of churches, and they are very entrepreneurial in nature in that you are running a quasi-business. At least, you know, it has to stay financially viable and you have budgets and you have, uh, you know, vision statements and all of that. I, I'm really kind of glad to say that for the most part, throughout most of my ministry, I've resisted all that sort of stuff. I don't like vision statements. I don't even know what they're supposed to do. I mean, what is the vision? Well, you know, we're follow Jesus, make disciples, be the kingdom of Christ here and now. I don't know what else to say. I don't have something cute and clever to come up with. Um, and and we had a, we had a surprise celebration yesterday for our administrator, um, who's been with us for twenty five years. Uh, and not retiring. He just, he's been with us 25 years, still going. And, and so we had a surprise. Just celebrating party. 25 yeah. years. Yeah, sure. And which is one of the things that I'm kind of proud of about Word of Life Church is, is you know, the newbies have been on staff for 10 years. You know, it's just a, a lot. We don't have a lot of turnover. It's a lot of longevity. It's a lot of people just raised up from within. I like that. <clears throat> but when we were talking about, you know, how we appreciate Stan Shaver, that's our administrator, I just said, I have pretty much left the whole money, finance, business side of the church to him so that I can do what I'm really supposed to do. Um, again, it may sound over-spiritual, but for me, I think it's genuine that, that I need to give myself to prayer. That on Sunday morning, I need to have a word from elsewhere, to borrow a phrase that I just love from Walter Brueggemann. Yeah, that's and great. if we're gonna have a word from elsewhere, it can't just be something we tag on in desperation on Saturday night. I think um, the pastor should be in an in, in, in an ideal idealistic form anyway. Uh, I don't. I'm, I'm nervous about using these phrases, but I'm going to use them. They should be. They should be a sage. They should be wise. They should someone. They let's use them. Mount. They should be someone that's qualified to be a mountain guide, if you want to use mountaineering, you know, and, and you don't, you don't get to guide your first day out, but you've been up this mountain numerous times and you've seen the weather conditions and you know what the dangers are and you know, and you, you kind of analyze the capability of your client. That's a bad term client, but you know, that's what you use when you talk about guides and, 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 and their clients, uh, you assess their capability. What can they do? What can't they do? Uh, all of that I think is really um, what it means to be a pastor. Now, part of the problem, though, in the American context is we don't have, it's, it's highly competitive. Um, I don't like that, but it's kind of the way it is. Um, a lot of church growth is really predicated upon becoming the best of a certain market in a certain city and 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 the christians go oh i like that one and you and you talk about church growth as if it's some wonderful thing that people are coming out of their empty lives of not knowing christ and finding you know lots of times it's just you become the best of that genre in that particular market and everybody flocks over and that, that's that's kind of 
that's kind of shallow and cheap. Uh, I probably got caught up in that in my 30s, maybe into my early 40s, because we began to have a lot of success. And that's very intoxicating. That goes to your head. And you like that. I mean, you do. Um, because for a long time, our church was under 100 people. And for a good part of that time, it was like well under 100 people, <laughs> like a whole lot under. Uh, and so, so I went, and that's another unique thing about World Life. All the, the, the church growth gurus, they will tell you, you know, if you're like seven years and you haven't broke 100, that you never will, except we did. And, um, and then we broke like a whole lot beyond that. past 100 yeah yeah and um that was fun I, I don't i don't apologize for calling it fun it was exciting it really was i mean if you go for a few years where pretty much except for like snow sundays every sunday is the biggest sunday you've ever had you're just growing like that that's very exciting uh and 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 i probably could have ridden that wave a lot longer but this is the story i don't want to go through it because other people probably heard it but that's my water to wine story where, where when i began to make changes it wasn't because you know what we'd been doing wasn't working in the in the according to the metrics that americans like to measure success no we were on top of the world um it was you know really that, that i just it took you the opposite way i mean by all those metrics yeah and so, you know, then we, then we began to lose people and we lost a lot of people. And that was hard and that was difficult. Uh, but we've come through that. And I, I like where we are today. Um, and maybe it's, you know, maybe part of it, I'm sure, is a stage of life thing. I'm 62 now. Um, I don't feel that competitive thing, that drive that we've got to be bigger, bigger, bigger. I, I just really... I just really want, I don't mind growth and we've seen growth and I like that, but I just want to be a, a wise, trusted guide to those that want to follow Jesus. And yeah. so, okay, that's all, I that's think, a long rambling answer, but. No, 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 that's great. I think it's, I think I read this in Eugene Peterson. You probably know, you probably read just about everything that he's. I, I think I have read everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's in his memoir where he tells the story of, he uses the, the analogy of, of Moby Dick. And there's a scene in the, the novel Mo, Moby Dick where you know they're out on the water and the storm is raging and all of the sailors are trying to keep the boat afloat and everybody's running around with their, you know, going crazy and trying to figure that out and hoist this sail. And there's water splashing everywhere and it's just chaos. And everybody is just going nuts except for the harpooner and that the harpooner is still and quiet with his hand on the harpoon gun, because if the white whale shows itself, he Queen needs Ray. to be, That's yeah, he, yeah. Okay. I've never read Moby Dick. I know you have, you know, uh, I still got three little kids. Maybe when I'm older, <laughs> I'll have time to read, I'll have time to read Moby Dick, but he and you, Peterson makes this analogy that the that the pastor has a similar calling to that harpooner, and that is that harpooner was living his life by a different yes. rhythm, a different yes. form, and showing all of the other people on the boat that you it is possible to live in your present condition by a different way, yeah. by a different uh, flow, and by a different I think he uses the word rhythm, and I and I think you're kind of touching on that same reality of, you know, the mountain guide or the, uh, the, you know, the person to take you up that there's, there's something about being a pastor and, and, you know, I've done that in various capacities, local church level, and now in a kind of parachurch ministry level. Uh, and I think there's something, tr there's, there's something there. And I think that that is kind of the heartbeat of it is, uh, the, the pastor is the one that is supposed to not only say and teach, um, which maybe we'll get back to that in a little, a little bit later, but to, to almost embody and to show, um, to, to live a life that says you can, even if you're not in full-time ministry, you mom with three kids and dad who's got to work 50 hours a week, there is a way to live in this present age by a different rhythm. Uh, in a different spirit, uh, 
sort of, you know, sort of say what is, am I, is that, is that Eugene yeah. Peterson? Did I get that right? I mean, if all you care and you know, I, 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 in his later years, I got to know Eugene pretty well. And uh, it took a little time because he was suspicious of me. <laughs> he thought that our church was too big to be any good. Uh, but uh, I think Perry convinced him otherwise. And uh, uh, shout out to Perry. Perry's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, he eventually just, he became impressed with our longevity and how we were just there, there, there. And, um, but one of the things that I really resonated with Eugene Peterson was that he understood, I mean, if, if church growth is the end all be all, what you do then is you just identify the assumed cultural values that Americans already want and give them a slightly tweaked Jesus version of it. You, you just, you, you promise them what it is they already want and slap a Jesus fish on it. Uh, you can, that sounds a little cynical, but I think that's fairly accurate. You can, you can gain a constituency that way. And, and people do. I think it'll be harder as we become more post-Christian, but that can be done. But, but you just have to be daring enough to say, no, I'm truly going to be countercultural. Where life began as part of the Jesus movement, which was genuinely countercultural. And I've tried to hold on to that. And I've tried to maybe even regain some of it over the last, well, it's been quite a while now, 17 years. Um, so if you let the growth come, but you don't, if you can't just set your eyes on that directly or you'll make way too many compromises and you, and you may win the game, but all you want is a game. You're not really producing something that is other. And uh, I like to think at Word of Life, we are, that people's lives are over time being transformed. And we've seen that. And, and we see that, um, a lot of people, you know, it's interesting, people that come from the general milieu of evangelicalism, when that begins to no longer really uh, be a possibility for them, a lot of times they won't explore anything else really outside of that world. And they're just sort of done. I mean, that's the word that's used. Uh, for a lot of people, and especially online, but also right here in St. Joseph. Uh, we have been able to be a lifeline for those kind of people that, um, you know, they, we've been able to give them another chance uh, or they are, or, or something like that. I don't know how to say it. We, we've had a phenomenon. We have several pastors who, for whatever reason, they went through their own water to wine and it didn't work out so well. They got fired or burnt out or run off or whatever that have moved their families here. You know, St. Joseph isn't like a destination site, you know, and people don't just sit around. If I could ever, if I could ever live in St. Joe, then my dreams would come true. I mean, we're not that place, but um, we still have had people move here because they felt like Word of Life was a place where they could raise their family, where they could keep following Jesus that wasn't toxic, that was healthy. And I think that's one of the things I'm most happy about that we've been able to be that kind of church yes certainly for vocational pastor types but just for other families too and i mean we've had others that weren't although i can think of three or four ministry families that have relocated just to be a part of word of life and i don't think that happens unless we are somehow really being something different yeah i mean <clears throat> i mean i i've gone through and I've shared a little bit of this with you uh, before too, but I mean, I've gone through my own, to use your own language, water to wine journey. And it, it started actually with, with you, with listening to a debate that you did in Kansas City called the Monster God debate. And then starting to read some of your work and other people that you, know, you were referencing and what you, I think, rightly call the, the good stuff. Uh, and, uh, you know, the Brueggemann's and NT rights of the world and all of this. And, uh, and then the election happened in 2016 and my whole, my whole world started spinning and I regularly, regularly would 
uh, listen to your guys' uh, services on Sunday mornings, read anything that you put out there, other people that, you know, uh, did. I've reached out to you a couple of times, came to your prayer school in, in 2018. And it is, it's, there's, there is something when, when things become agitated, I mean, I've, I found something that you guys are doing there uh, that you've personally been through and then taken the congregation through uh, as a pastor that has, I mean, that helped me is just some random person, you know, on the other side of the country, now on the other side of the world uh, to navigate what does following Jesus look like in my context with what I'm seeing and feeling and hearing and, and understanding now. So um, how, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to just get into the water to wine story. Uh, but just because you've, you've told that a bunch of other places, if people want to go find it, which they should, and they should go read the book. It, it really is fascinating. But you, you took a church, your church through a really difficult time, this huge shift in transition. Uh, most pastors that I know, uh, have told me themselves and all the pa other pastors that they're connected to coming out of COVID, this is for most of them, the most difficult time that they've had to navigate the, you know, the church through and all of the things that were swirling. And I know the, your kind of your church's journey and the pandemic were totally different. They're not in the same the pandemic, you know, the same was easy. but they're easy. Compared to that. Compared to that. No, oh, okay. Well, right. well, then I'm talking to the right guy. Talk, talk to me from a pastoral perspective. What does it mean to, to, what is the role of the pastor when you're walking? I mean, I'm thinking more in like the whole congregation context, when you're walking a congregation through something difficult. Like, I mean, we, I had a brief conversation with Glenn Packham about when um, they had a shooting on their campus and what their pastoral team did to work of the con to, to lead the congregation through something like that. Um, yeah, my story is unique. And I, I want to be careful that I don't talk about it as the model. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So beginning in 2004, I embarked, I mean, I don't know how much it was, it wasn't like a plan necessarily, but it, but you know, I was, the water was turning to wine, right, in my own soul, and I'm finding a much richer, deeper, healthier theology, etc. Uh, but I'm not content just to, to have this as my own private discovery and experience. I feel like I need to try to bring the church with me. Our church was just basically kind of a fairly typical, you know, somewhat word of faith, charismatic church, and now I'm going to try to go in a different direction. Well, let's keep in mind that I, I at least had the opportunity to try. I wasn't a guy that had been, you know, hired as the pastor two years ago. I was the founding pastor. I've been there longer than anybody. Uh, I didn't have a bishop that was going to come and throw me out. I didn't have a congregation that was going to vote me out. Now, they could all leave, and a lot of them did, but at least I had the opportunity to try. And I'm going to be honest, not every pastor has the opportunity to even try. I mean, it would be foolish and perhaps even wrong to attempt that, but I could. Um, so I did, and I couldn't have done otherwise because I just felt like it would have been a complete betrayal of my pastoral vocation, that I was to be the guide. I was to be the shepherd. I was to lead them to better fields that I had found. I couldn't pretend that they didn't exist and that I didn't know where they were because I knew. And so I had to try. Um, it cost a lot. It was deeply painful. One of the things I think that as I look at the book, Water to Wine, which I think came out in 2014, I could reach across the table and look at it. But I'm not that sounds about right. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. As I look at that book today, one of the things I would say is everything there's true but I probably downplay how painful it was because when I wrote it, it was still pretty painful. Honestly, today I can say, now we're through that, things are good and, and it's, it's a memory, but it's, there's, so, the, so the scar exists, but there's no pain in it anymore. Uh, but I think I needed to downplay. And even then, I think if you read the book, you go, man, that was hard for that guy. And it was, it hurt. 
framework, but it was more than I let on. Um, so it, it was, it's not something that I wanna, would want to do again. But there's some things I did right. I think I, think I did okay. Uh, I think I did as well as could be expected. I'll talk about the one thing I did wrong. And that was fairly early on in this journey, this transition. I was so excited about what I was discovering that I was trying to preach it to the church too soon. I didn't give it enough time to metabolize within me. So that really took on my own DNA and character. I was, you know, reading whatever I'd be reading and then trying to turn right around and preach that. And, and it was good stuff. I stand by all of it, except I needed, I needed more time to metabolize it. And, and so that it becomes BZ and maybe be a little more patient. I, that was a problem. That was a mistake around 2006. And it was just too much too fast. And I, and, and I was preaching some sermons at that time that were probably more suited for the seminary. They were a little too academic theology driven. That still always lurks in the background of what I do, but I think I, I've, I've learned how to, okay, be a little more or maybe a lot more pastoral with it. So that was the mistake I made. Uh, what I did right, some of it, some of it I, I didn't do. It just, it, it's the grace of God. One of the best things is that my wife, Perry, was right with me. I wasn't leading her. She wasn't leading me. Neither of us were trying to talk the other into, you know, finding something. But we were just doing it together. And so there was never any tension there. And that was a great saving grace. Uh, the other thing, again, I didn't do this. It just happened. But two guys, I think you know them both, came into my life at that time. Uh, two other pastors, Joe Beach and Brad Jerzak. They just, they just arrived in my life at that time. And that gave me a, a friendship that I could talk openly and honestly with about this journey that they were essentially on also. Um, it just gave me some compatriots, some companionship. So I didn't just feel lonely. Uh, that, that was a saving grace. I learned how to pray well during that time. It was during the early part of this that I began to pray what became my prayer school. Prayer school was never in, I didn't like to set out to, oh, I think I'm going to do prayer school. Hmm, what should I do? It didn't happen that way. Prayer, I have no notes on prayer school. Prayer school is simply me telling you how I learned to, what I do when I pray. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. I've been there. That's literally, that, that is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. But if I hadn't learned that at that time, I don't think I could have survived. I think I would have been too depressed, too hurt, too maybe angry, perhaps even, uh, to continue to do that well. But, but learning to pray well, I was able to go through that. And then the other thing was, is, is the, the staff, the leadership team, the pastoral team, although they're not, they don't all carry the title pastor, but they're all part of the pastoral team. Uh, I pretty much, they all pretty much came with me. Now, some of them then moved on and took on other churches, you know, around the country, even around the world. Uh, but they, they weren't leaving like mad or anything like that. They're, they weren't still, splitting off. Yeah. They, they still call me their pastor. They still look to me, you know? And, uh, but so I was able to bring that leadership team and that was no, that didn't happen accidentally. I look back on it. How did I have time for this? That's but, kind of a miracle, honestly, that the whole, you know, well, during that time though, team. we spent probably a minimum of an hour and a half every Tuesday morning, hour and a half to two hours, where I would teach or, but when I say teach, it isn't like I had notes or anything. It was, it was me just talking about, okay, here's what I've been reading, here's what I'm thinking, here's the direction I'm going theologically. And I was just able to keep bringing them with me. We would have occasionally a book study together. Uh, didn't do too much of that, but did some of that. But I was just able to bring them with me. I didn't run off and leave them. And so, uh, whereas we had a lot of people getting upset in the congregation, especially as we began to pull away from, you know, the, the religious right stuff and some things like that, they were being upset. But the leadership was, was all kind of just solidly, no, this is good. We're, we're following Jesus. This is the right thing. And I gave a lot of priority to that. And, uh, 
and that that was a good thing. And they're, you know, most of them are still, well, we're all still friends. Some of them are pastors in New Zealand or Baltimore or Minnesota or wherever, but, sure. but uh, most of them are actually still right there at Word Alive. Still there. So how, there's a few things out of there that I would like to try and tackle. One is, okay, so the, the pastor is the guide. Um, and you've hit, you've mentioned now two things multiple times here in our conversation. One is prayer yeah. and the other is, is teaching. Mm-hmm. And we get this, we get this line early in the book of acts. They're having, you know, the dispute about who needs to feed tables and whatever. And, and the apostles say, Hey, you guys, you know, they appoint some people to do it. They say, cause we need to give ourselves to, to the scriptures and to prayer. Um, what is the, what's the, what's your relationship as a pastor leading other people and trying to be that guide uh, to follow Jesus, follow Jesus well, navigating whether it's good times or something like the pandemic or what you guys went through. Um, what's, what do you view as your role in, in those two things specifically in uh, uh, prayer and personally and and then what you've obviously gone to do is teach people how to pray uh and then just teaching the scriptures in in general um and and what is your you know how do you approach and not how do you approach those things like an x's and o type type of thing you know your study layer or whatever but just kind of philosophically as far as what you feel like your vocational calling is you know i can tell you i absolutely prioritize it and always have um there's a lot of things. First of all, just kind of a, a personal value that I've had and I've, I've stuck to it. I meet with anybody in our congregation who wants to meet with me. And they you know, don't have to wait very long. You know, I can't always do it right that moment. But, you know, anybody asks to meet with me, I don't, I don't say no, meet with this. I say, oh, sure. Okay, I'll meet with you. Um, they, they find out earlier on that it's better actually to meet with Perry because... <laughs> She's the trained spiritual director, not me, but, but I'll meet with anybody. And I do, um, but I, but I, you know, and I do whatever else it is I have to do, but I have prioritized giving myself to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And I don't, I mean, I don't know what, I don't know what our, our viewers, listeners will think of this statement. I'm just saying it completely as, as, as objectively as I can. I have never preached and not been really prepared ever once i mean I'm and, not and how many sermons good. have you uh, this will test you how many sermons have you done i have point? written i don't know how many i've preached that okay, i've written i i would guess i well first off i have written 3570 that's yeah. amazing that's exactly that you have the number 3570 it's right at four million words of uh sermon notes which is bigger than Barth's church dogmatics, <laughs> if, if that gives you any idea. And I have, uh, and I'm not saying that they were all good. I'm just saying that I, I always saw that as a, just a holy responsibility. I've had, I've had guys ask, how many times pastor did you get up on a Sunday morning? And then, you know, right there at the last moment, you just throw away the sermon. You go a different direction. I said, zero. That has never, ever <laughs> happened. Not once. And I said, well, don't you believe in being led by the Holy Spirit? I, said, I believe in being led by the Holy Spirit on Thursday, you know. There you go. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, we could go. That's a tangent waiting to happen. I mean, that's not the thing that, the you know, Spirit, in the yeah. moment you don't sometimes. Although, as I teach on homiletics and I teach preaching classes and I do some of this, uh, I, you know, I don't really encourage a lot of that. Prepare and pretty much stick with I. I don't preach from a manuscript. I preach from about 1,000 to 1,200 words. Uh, per sermon. So it's somewhere between, you know, it's not a manuscript, but it's far more than just an outline. I think, I think if I'm doing good, if I'm preaching well, you will say he's very spontaneous. I, that's just, that's just style. I'm not, I'm not really that spontaneous. I pretty much know what I'm going to say and I stick with it, but I just see it as a holy vocation. And I give my, and how many times have I preached? I don't know. I probably, 6,000 times or something, or maybe more. I don't know. That's crazy. I, ha- I, I, I can't, I don't know a whole lot. Uh, but 3,570 sermons written. Uh, 
I've reached the point now, and this will surprise people, that I write the sermon on Saturdays. I'll work on it. I'll have ideas, and I'll do some reading, and I'll jot down some notes. It's not that I'm putting it off. I'm not that, I'm not that at all. I just I like working that close to it. The Sunday sermon is, you know, for years, I mean, five years ago, we finally put it away. But for years, we had Sunday and Friday. We had Friday night, so I would do I would write the Friday sermon on Friday and the Sunday sermon on Saturday. But it's an all-day thing. So people ask me, how long does it take to write a sermon? So it's one day, one day. It's a day's work. Now, or 40 years, depending on how you look at it. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that every young pastor can write a good sermon by just giving one day to it. But look, I've got a lot of preparation that's already been put in. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. And, and, um, but I see that, and, and to pray for the congregation, to pray on behalf of the congregation, just be a, a person who's immersed in prayer, that prayer is not foreign, that kind of lives a life of prayer, that has a habit, a rhythm of prayer. I think that's absolutely essential for a pastor. And, and, then, and then to be able to teach people how to pray is, without question, the most important thing I do. Yeah, yeah. okay, and that's exactly what I was going to say. I was lucky enough growing up that when, when I really kind of came to faith, I grew up in the church, but it was really when I was senior in high school into my freshman year of college, um, I had a couple of people in, in my life that at least were modeling it for me. I, nobody ever really sat me down. I mean, like you do at your prayer school and say, hey, this is how you do it. But we actually, we at least had prayer meetings that they said, Hey, just come and you just be in the room and just give us some time and you'll figure it out and ask questions along the way. And that's what I did. Um, and I'm, I'm eternally grateful for that. Not a lot of people have that though. Um, it's for most people, it's kind of, you show up and you're told something, but you know, I, I've done a lot of campus ministry and then teaching in um, various kind of parachurch ministries, mostly to college age students. And the story is almost all the same is, is I'll sit down with them, talk about, you know, reading their Bibles or something like that. And they'll tell me that this is the first time anyone has ever told me, like, how do you, how do you actually do this? I've just been told my whole life that you should do it. And, and the pastor, you know, gives the sermon on Sunday, but you have this, you, you have, I don't want to say figure it out, but you've prioritized, it seems like anyway, this unique thing, both in your prayer school and then in your preaching style of I'm going to, you, you openly like, this is how you pray. And this is how you read your Bible. I, you guys just recently did a series. I know of like finding Jesus in Genesis, not that long ago, where you're like, Hey, here's how you read the Bible. Here's how you read the old Testament. Let's walk through some stories and find Jesus. And you just modeled it for everybody. So that when they go home, they can open up their Bible and, and actually have a fighting chance to understand what in the world is Genesis 17 about. Cause you know, I've got no idea otherwise, um, unless I buy some random book. Talk to me a little bit about how did how have you viewed that responsibility as a pastor? Because um, I think you you do a better job than almost anyone that I know anyway at purposefully teaching your congregants to do those two things. Yeah, I think in certain parts of the Protestant world, um, Pentecostal, Charismatic, Evangelical world, we've placed almost an intolerable burden on people. We've just sort of flung a Bible at them and said, here's this is the word of God, read it. Oh, yeah, and you should pray too. Every morning. <laughs> yeah, and, and it just, it, it, for most people, it leads them to a sense of failure and guilt because they don't excel at that. And then, then you'll have a few people that think they're great at it and they're terrible at it and they become arrogant and a, a real problem. They become super spiritual and it'd be better if they'd never even bothered with it. <laughs> so I, I just think really the, that, is, that is central to the pastoral vocation is to show people what do you do with the scriptures and how do you pray? I mean, I, I've been doing a thing on how I read the Bible. It's a 90-minute. It's, it's almost impossible to do it in 90 minutes, I've found out. I, it needs to be maybe two sessions. But I'm trying to keep it one, you know, how I read the Bible. And it's real nuts and bolts things. I mean, I spend my, maybe the first 45 minutes 
40 minutes of talking about what, what is the Bible? What, actually, what is it? Yeah. And, the, and then I give them just a lot of practical things about how to go about, you know, you have this canonical sacred text. What do you do with it? And um, how do you read in? So, so those kinds of things, I mean, I do know, Max, that I'm a little bit unique, that there aren't a lot of people doing that sort of thing. No. But no. I'm thinking, why in the world? I mean, this is what people need. This is why, I mean, I, I can't, I can't, I really can't exaggerate how many people have told me over the years how prayer school saved their Christian life. That they just, it just, they wouldn't have made it without that. And I don't think it's that difficult. But for whatever reason, it hasn't been done. Um, so anyway, uh, but, but I, think, I, mean, I think that's, I think a lot of times pastors, I don't, for whatever reason, in the American context, they feel like they need to be a counselor. Now, look, I can, I, I can do some, I can help you with your theo theological questions. I can help you with learning how to pray. I can help you with some of that, but I'm not a counselor. If you're having marriage problems, I'm probably not the best you're going to get. You probably need a, like a marriage counselor or, or just if you're really struggling with depression and some things like that, that you would go to a therapist for, you probably actually need a therapist. The problem is, a lot, especially in this non-denominational world, pastors are supposed to be experts on family, on marriage, on finance, on just, you know, be some sort of life coach. I don't even sure what that is, but, you know, how to just tell people how to do everything exactly right. And, and that, I just have said, no, I've got a few things that I know, and that's what I'm going to teach. And the rest, I'm going to let other people do. And, and we have people in our congregation. I'm, I am not the guy to give you financial advice. I don't know anything about that. I mean, or, or legal advice. I mean, I was raised by lawyers, but I'm not a lawyer. And so I'm not going to give you legal advice. Um, I, I think there's just something about a pastor being self-confident enough to say, this is what I know. And I don't know that stuff. That's not my job. That's not what I'm called to. I can help you here. Uh, I don't, I'm, I'm sometimes leery of the word spiritual, but sometimes you can't find another word. And so I attend to the spiritual care of people's souls. That's what I do. Um, now, that's not the whole of life. And there's a lot of life that lies outside of that that is very important, but it's not what I do. And I'm not going to pretend. I, there was a time probably where in my 20s and 30s where I felt the pressure to be that guy that knew about all these things. And now I've long since said, I don't know that. And I'm not going to pretend that I do. So um, I think it would be good for pastors to be a lot more narrow. Now I understand as, as a narrow, and I don't mean narrow minded, I mean, narrow in focus and what to do. Uh, now part of that, I mean, I've done it all. If you can do it as a pastor, I've probably done it. I mean, I've led worship and I'm no good at that, but uh, you know, sometimes you do what you have to do. And I've, you know, done the finances and balanced the books and I've done all of that because early on you have to do it all. Uh, but over the last many years, I've been pretty uh, fanatical really about saying, this is what I do. This is where my gifts lie. This is how I'm a blessing to this congregation. That's what I'm going to give myself to. And that was also Eugene Peterson's pastoral gospel. That, you know, uh, he, he almost burned out and he was trying to do everything. And he, and he was, as his phrase goes, I was too busy running this damn church to be a pastor. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and he decided, no, he was going to become a pastor, which means... Uh, slower, more contemplative, someone that, that if you do have an hour with, it's, it's worth your hour because they have something to say. Uh, but but that's, that's something that you, you don't go to a conference and get that. You don't go to a seminar and learn how to do that. That comes over a, 
you know, really over a lifetime. And, and, you can, and don't fake it. I mean, attend to your own soul. Um, become one who knows how to hear the voice of God. One who lives, I mean, from day one, I've just thought, okay, this is, this is my primary tool. Now, I've grown and developed on how I understand Scripture and how I work with it. But as far as just like knowing the text, I mean, there, there's nothing in this book that's mysterious to me in the sense of I don't know. I didn't know that was in there. Oh, no, I, know, I pretty much know what's in there. I just figure it's, it's I'm, I'm obligated to know the text exceedingly well. And, and I don't say, okay, I learned that 30 years ago. No, I mean, I read, you know, I, I, I read from the Old Testament, New Testament for somewhere between 30 minutes and 45 minutes every morning. That's not, um, that's not study. That's not sermon preparation. That's none of that. That's just me inhabiting the text because I need to live there because this is the terrain through which I'm going to help guide people. So I need to know the text very well. And then I need to be a person who's not a stranger to prayer, but is comfortable in prayer, living my life there, um, rooted deep enough into that so that, so that I'm established in peace. Because a lot of the time when people do want to meet with me, when they want to meet, I want to, I need, I need, I need an hour of your time, Pastor. It's not usually to tell me how great things are going. Right, right. Yeah, it's usually yeah, yeah. because, you know, they're in a crisis of some kind. And um, so, so if they're, if they're, let's say they're in a dire financial situation uh, and they're maybe on the verge of bankruptcy, they don't know. Again, I'm not a financial counselor, so I don't give them advice in those areas. They can go find that elsewhere. But what they really want is someone that is tethered very tightly to the peace of God and then can help, help them enter into that. I mean, it does no good for me to go, oh, my God, what are you going to do? <laughs> no, I, I need to genuinely, not faking it, but genuinely be established. You know, the, the, the gospel reading for this past Sunday throughout this week is, is, is Jesus asleep on the cushion in the midst of the storm. And they wake him up. And the thing is, he's not freaked out. He, first of all, he was enough at peace that he could go to sleep in the storm. But then when they need him, they wake him up and he, he peace be still. So I guess I would say it this way. I need and I can't just go to a conference, go to a seminar, listen to some teaching and get there. I have to be living my life in such a way that I can sit with somebody on a Monday and look them in the eye and say, peace, be still. And actually something happens in their soul. That's what, that's what being a pastor is about. Let's end here. Uh, what is one thing that you wish the average congregant knew about being a pastor? Because I, there's, I asked my grandpa, which you know, my grandpa was oh, yeah. this legend. He was a legend. And I, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I remember when I first became a pastor, I walked out of the church into the church parking lot and he was out there sweeping rocks in the parking lot, which mm -hmm. is, you know, just, he was, you know, how Jesus was making for, mistaken for the gardener. He was mistaken for the janitor yep. for almost I've his whole entire I've done it all. I pastor. Yeah. And I asked him, I said, okay, hey, grandpa, I'm 24, something like that. You know, it's official. I'm here. Give me some advice. What, what can you tell me? You know, I'm looking for some wisdom. And all he looked, he looked right at me, stopped sweeping for a second, looked right at me. And he goes, just remember, people are funny. And there's always more going on than what they think are going on. And he just put his head back down and started sweeping. And now, you know, I'm not that far into it. I'm 33 now. So I'm 10, 10 years into full-time vocational ministry. Uh, he's right. There's the, the, what the average person thinks that's going on. It's just usually a small sliver. And most of the time it's just having to bridge some gaps for people. So we'll end here. What is one thing that you wish the average congregant knew about being a pastor to just so they can, their, maybe their own mind can rest at ease a little bit on a Sunday morning or 
throughout their, their, their week? That's a hard question. Um, I'll get to an answer here. Part of me wants to, part of me, I'm not going to say this, but part of me wanted to say, I kind of wish they knew it was harder than they think. I honestly think it's almost inexplicably harder than they can imagine. Um, I'm, I haven't got to my answer yet. Um, I don't know if this is true, but I used to, during some of the harder times I've told Perry, I said, you know, if, um, if it turned out that, you know, after we finish our race and we stand before the Lord and the Lord says, no, I, I want you to go back and do it again. I've, I've often said, I'd say, yeah, do I have to be a pastor again? I mean, I, I've loved it, but it's also been very hard. It's been, it's just been painful. It's not now, and it hasn't been for several years. But I don't know if that I would say that. I don't know that I want them to know that. I don't know that. I think that's my burden to bear. So I don't know. So that's not my answer because I don't think I want them to know that. I don't think they need to know that. I think I just have, that's that's part of the fellowship of his sufferings. That's part of, you know, participating in the sufferings of Christ. And so I have to go to Jesus for that. That's not for me to lay on them. I mean, like, if you're a good parent, if, if you're going through a hard time, maybe, maybe financially, you don't lay that on the kids. They, they, they don't need to know that. That's for you to carry. So that's not my, I, I think that's true. I think it's far harder than most people, but it's not for me to lay that on them. Um, I, I think I would want them to know, at least in my case, I would want them to know that you that they are held in my heart more than they think they are. Uh, I, I'm I'm basically an introvert, um, and introverts can be misread. Introvert, I mean, you know, because you can stand on a platform and preach and speak, do not mistake that for being an extrovert, because uh, that's that's a different thing. Um, it, when I get done preaching. And I go out and, you know, and I greet people. That's always the most uncomfortable time for me. And, and nothing anymore is unpleasant. People are just saying nice things. And all, but it's still, I feel out of my depth. I feel awkward. I don't always know what to say. And uh, I think sometimes I can be read as aloof, where I'm, whereas I'm just really more a little bit more introverted. But, the, but I understand how that throws people off because they see me on stage being confident. And then all of a sudden I'm a little bit not. I think they, I think they, I, I wish they would know, maybe I wish they would know that, that they're held in my heart more than they think they are. And uh, that if someone comes up to me and says, pray for me, I do. I mean, I, I may pray for them for weeks. I don't do that thing where I'm going to pray and then I forget. Um, I, I mean, we're just talking here. I don't know why I'm sharing this. I feel a little bit self-conscious here, but because some, because, because I would say to Perry, "Oh, I've been praying for them. I've been praying for them." She said, "How many people do you pray for?" I said, "I don't know." She said, "I want you." She bugged me to write them down. And I said, "Okay, I'll try it." And I think, and it comes goes, but at any given time, I'm praying for around 130 to 150 people. Wow. Name. And uh, I don't write them. There isn't a list. They just, they're there. They kind of. They're literally and, just in and, your head. And, yeah. And then, then they'll, or I say my heart. And then they, you know, because you, you can't forever add someone. Right. Because then it becomes too big. So then, you know, I feel like, okay, maybe they're through this period or whatever. And I can move them, you know, aside for at least for a time. But I, I wish they kind of knew that, that, that even if I'm not, necessarily the most outgoing gregarious guy you know after church or whatever I still you're in my heart and I and I care and I'm deeply committed to your spiritual well-being so yeah, that's good well we'll leave it at that then uh that's a great answer that's a great answer and I I do think that that's probably true for most 
good pastors. You know, and I think most pastors are good pastors. I think they're good people anyway. Uh, the the toxic, arrogant, they, they they suck up a lot of the oxygen. They get a lot of attention. But you know, I you know you know what my life is like. I've met I've met thousands of pastors. I assume over the years, and the the bad ones kind of can stand out. They're they're garish and and they 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 shock you and they leave a bad impression. And so they're memorable in one sense. But the vast majority are men and women of good faith and good character who are doing the best they can and are just, you know, good people that should be, you know, commended, who, who I think the I think most of them will hear Jesus say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I think, I think most of them will hear that. That may come, that'll, that'll come, that'll come as a shock to, you know, the empty the pews crowd. But I think the vast majority of pastors will hear Jesus say, well done. Yeah. And I, I agree with you. One of the things that has come to kind of bother me the most is when I'm listening to a somebody or a preacher or whatever start ragging on the American church as dead and idolatrous in this way and da 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 da, yeah. and because um, I just think, hey, how presumptuous to know to to speak to the entire like church experience and be. I think most pastors are just doing the best that they can. I think most people are just doing. Well, the best I that think they there's can. a big difference between if you, if your concept of a church is social media, you know, Twitter, versus versus actually showing up on a Sunday morning. Yeah, and you discover that you know there really is no place quite like the church, where such a diverse group of people can gather together and sincerely become a family and love one another. Despite all their goofiness and failures and wacky ideas and problems, and yet they, they still can hold one another in love. And that's a, that's a remarkable thing. Yeah, I agree. I agree.